We're going to get started. Our second class here, Bibliology, Bible Basics Continued. You should all have an outline in front of you. Do you guys all have that? If somebody doesn't, can we get one to him? We got two. We need two in the front here. All right. Does everybody have the outline? We need one more up here. Okay. Yeah, we got a few extras. Good. All right. So you there on your outline will be picking it up on E, which is the significance of the Bible. Okay, the significance of the Bible tonight. We'll be looking at its origin, the significance of the Bible. Well, it's from God. That makes it pretty significant. <laughs> if it is the book that God has chosen to reveal His self, His, His nature, His character to us, then it's important. Secondly, the nature of God is that He is holy, so therefore the Word of God is holy. That's why it is called the Holy Bible. Now the Bible itself, we, we looked at that, it declares itself to be the Word of God. Um, but the question then, if that's true, do we give it the place of importance that it should have if it really is God's Word? And if it is, why isn't it the primary reader for all of our school children today? Um, look at this. Somebody said, why is it that our kids can't read a Bible in school, but they can in prison? What, what, isn't, that messed, isn't that messed up? Yeah. That, that we'll hand out Bibles to prisons, but we won't let a kid read it in school. It's kind of mixed up. But I don't know if any of you guys know this, but there was actually a year of the Bible declared in the United States of America in 1983. Maybe some of you remember that. On October the 4th, there was a joint resolution of both the Senate and the House of representatives, it was the 97th Congress of the United States of America, and I'll read the law to you that was passed. It says, Whereas that renewing our knowledge of and faith in God through holy scriptures can strengthen us as a nation and a people, the Bible, the Word of God, has made a unique contribution in shaping the United States as a distinctive and blessed nation. Deeply held religious convictions springing from the Holy Scriptures led to the early settlement of our nation. This is all part of the law. This is Public Law 97-280. You can look it up. Public Law 97-280. It says, Biblical teaching inspired concepts of civil government that are contained in our Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States. That was part of Public Law 97280 passed in 1982, in October 1982, and that was for what was known as the Year of the Bible in 1983. Ronald Reagan, one of our presidents, very instrumental in promoting the Bible, he said this Can we resolve to reach, learn, and try to heed the greatest message ever written, God's Word and the Holy Bible? Inside its pages lie all the answers to all the problems that man has ever known. That was President Ronald Reagan said that. And I don't know if any of you guys uh, saw it or not, but this week it was in the Washington Post uh, in, in an editorial. There was a letter published 
from Ronald Reagan to his father-in-law, who is an atheist. And, and man, if you um, have some time to look that up, it's a pretty cool read. The way that he was witnessing to his father-in-law uh, is pretty powerful, pretty touching, the way that he wrote that letter. Uh, and, and, and he was witnessing to somebody that he knew was an atheist, but he was doing it because he knew that eternity was far weightier than getting rejected by his father-in-law. And, and, and that's, that's it's, a, it's a really neat read. But anyways, coming now to number, or letter F. F, structure and division. Structure and division of the Bible. Obviously, you've got the two testaments. Uh, they're both testaments. What does the word testament mean? Can somebody tell me what a testament is? An, an agreement, yeah. Covenant, yes. Agreement, covenant, what else? It's, it's, it's like a will. It's a witness. It's a will. It's, it's, it's a contract. Okay, All of those things are carried in that idea of a testament. There are two divisions. The division of the Old Testament. The Old Testament includes the Torah, historical books, the poetry books, and the prophetic books. And the prophetic books, of course, can be broken into major and minor. Major prophets, minor prophets. There are 39 books in all. You might want to circle that or note there it is highlighted in bold. You're going to need to remember that. 39 books of the Old Testament. And they were written or composed from about 1400 to 400 B.C. And then you've got the covenant, or the, and then the New Testament. Notice that the covenants are divided by a significant event. The cross of Jesus Christ. So after the cross, you've got the New Testament, the, 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 the new covenant made in the blood of Christ. And that consists of the Gospels, the Epistles, and the prophetic writings of the New Testament. Okay, those are the three main divisions of the New Testament. And those are 27 books. And that was written from as early as 45 A.D. to 90 A.D. Okay? So think about that. We, we, we believe that Christ was crucified somewhere between 30 and 33 A.D. And you've already got the first gospel, we believe it's probably the gospel of Mark, in circulation in about 45 A.D. amongst the early church. Okay, so really significant dates there. <coughs> and then you've got other structure and divisions of the Bible. That's the chapter and verse structures. And divisions of the Bible. Now, those divisions are not in the original text, you guys. When the New Testament was written, it was not written, you know, Paul wasn't like, okay, verse 6, you know, and, and then writing verse 6. No, it was all one long letter. And that came later. And they're useful for helping us to locate a passage of Scripture. That's why it was done. It's such an important text. They came along and said, you know what, we've got to break this into a way that we can find a verse when we need to, you know, instead of, you know, having to scroll through the whole gospel and try to find what we could find. Now, an example of that, if you want to see, uh, or, or, let, me, let me make this clear. The divisions of the Bible, breaking them into chapters and verses, that is not inspired, okay? That's not what we affirm as inspired Scripture, okay? That is not something that we look at and say, yeah, that's divinely inspired the way they broke that up. And you can get an idea of that if you turn to John chapter 13. Can I get one of you guys, a volunteer, to turn to John chapter 13 and read verse 36 through verse 4. And you'll see 
that 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 all that whole section actually really belongs together. They they really shouldn't have divided that. Go ahead, bud. Yeah, John 13, verse 36 to 14, verse 4. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow, for you have denied me three times. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it was not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. So you see how that's all tied together. Jesus in chapter 13 was talking to his disciples, telling them uh, that he was going to be going away from them. And, and then in 14, he continues to talk about that. And, and so he's, it, all of that really belongs together. But they've divided that into chapter 13 and 14 and split it up. And so oftentimes people will read chapter 13 and then they come back and read chapter 14 at a different time. And it doesn't seem to flow together. That's what I mean by, hey, that division, that's not inspired by God. That's just put there by man. And we have to remember that sometimes as we're studying the Bible. Isn't there like a book written, though, about the numbers and how they've all played together? And I can't remember what the book is called, but it's something, numerology in the Bible or something like that. Yeah, but I don't think they're counting the numbers that man put in the Bible. I think what they're counting there is... Um, in, in the Hebrew language, each Hebrew letter also um, has a value of a number. And so they've, they, they do some things with that. That's really, um, I think it's, uh, that's kind of dangerous stuff to be fooling around with. To, to, to take something like that and to say, this is what this is saying. I think that's a little bit um, iffy to be doing that. Um, I don't know how to exactly say that, but uh, I wouldn't say that that's uh, solid interpretation of the Bible to take the numbers. But yeah, there is a book like that out there. Bible Code, the Bible Code, I think is what it's called. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there, it, it can be a big deal for some of those. It kind of borders on Yeah, okay. And, all right. G, who wrote the Bible? Who wrote the Bible? Again, these are these are... This is all basic stuff that you guys should memorize, okay? And, and we're going to spend a little bit of time tonight doing that. But there are 40-plus authors who contributed to the Bible. They wrote a compilation of 66 separate books combined into one. you got 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament books. That's 1,186 chapters, you guys. 1,186 chapters. Plus or minus 400,000 words that were written, depending on which version you're going to read. Okay, some, some versions are more wordy than others. But if you think about that, this is unique in that the Bible has 40 plus authors writing over 400,000 words. And, and we're going to get into this in a second. But think about the Book of Mormon, for example. The Book of Mormon was written by one man, Joseph Smith. One man. We're trusting in one man. 
to write down the Word of God for the Book of Mormon. Not we, not we, but they. And then you've got L. Ron Hubbard. He wrote Dianetics all by himself. Dianetics is Scientology. The, it's the study of uh, how the mind relates to the body. And it's some wacky stuff. If you want to start reading some of that, it gets, it gets really weird. Dianetics for Scientology. In fact, they won't even proclaim that a science. It's called a pseudoscience because it's not based on scientific fact. It's not provable. And then you've got the Muhammad, which is Quran, who wrote the Quran by himself over a period of 23 years, I think it is. It's, he started writing it when he was 40, and he wrote it for the rest of his life until he died, according to the, uh, the Quran. So those, those unique books, those sacred texts, written by one person, okay? And uh, what's interesting is when you study those books, they don't, they're not really coherent with themselves. There's contradictions. Um, there's things that don't make sense. There's things in uh, in Joseph Smith actually um, plagiarized portions of the the Bible itself and put that in the Book of Mormon and little things like that where you just you're going and man this is this is weird this is interesting but the Bible's not like that it's totally different forty plus authors and yet there's one consistent message that doesn't contradict itself now two backgrounds and cultures were different the backgrounds and cultures were different whoops. Moses, think about it. Moses was a political leader. Peter was a fisherman. Amos wrote the the book of Amos. He was a herdsman. You got Joshua, who was just an assistant guy to Moses and and then became a military general. You had Nehemiah. He was a cupbearer. His job was to taste the, 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 the king's drinks. You had Daniel, who was a prime minister. Luke, who was a doctor. Solomon, a king, Matthew, a tax collector, Paul, a Pharisee, Samuel, who was a priest. All these different guys, different professions. That would be like me telling you that a skinhead, a pastor, a rapper, a president, a farm laborer, a businessman, and a student all came together and wrote a sacred text. And we should believe them, you know? When you guys are looking like, what? But listen, they... These guys all contributed together to a sacred book that has one common theme. Different backgrounds, different families, different uh, discriminations, different economic classes, different traditions, all of those things. Think about that. Think about the cultures for a second that these guys came from. Some of the cultures were pagan and humanistic. Others were biblical, like like Paul's culture. It was a biblical culture. Judaism was the, the religion of the day. There was polytheistic cultures. There was, there was the, the, the way that the cultures treated women back in those times, in b- biblical times. It was horrible the way they treated women and slaves. And so all of that, you have to think about that when you're realizing the significance of the Bible and where it's come from. All, not only that, the times of the writing. Number three, the times of writing were different. David wrote when he was in war, times of war. A lot of the Psalms are about battles that David was in. Uh, Solomon wrote in a time of peace. So he wrote the Proverbs and the book of Ecclesiastes in peaceful times. Then you have this, this, this you know, Bible written over a period of 1,500 years, guys. Moses, all the way back in 1400 B.C. to John, the Apostle John, who was writing the book of Revelation in about 90 A.D., we think. That's over 40 generations. It's pretty incredible. 
Now, critics of the Bible, skeptics will come and they will tell us, how can the Bible be accurate when, you know, all of these factors are in play? When you have all of these people of different times, they didn't have any scientific evidence. They didn't have any technology like we do today. How could they be accurate in what they were writing down? You know, you had people for a time uh, in the medieval times, they, they viewed the world as flat. People that didn't understand the body's organs, how to, how, how to do proper hygiene and take care so you didn't spread disease, all that kind of stuff. But listen, they'll, they'll tell you, hey, it, a lot of that stuff, it's just myths. It, it's just myths. Kind of like what uh, we find in the, in, uh, the hadiths of, of Islam. A hadith is a saying uh, or a story, a narrative concerning the Prophet Muhammad. One such bizarre teaching from Islam is Muhammad's assertion that Satan literally stays in a person's nose at night and needs to be flushed out by snorting water in and out one of, of your nose three times in the morning. It's called performing ablution. I'm not kidding you. You can look this up. Satan hides in your nose. It's one of the hadiths. I'll read it to you. It says this in Sahih Muslim, book 2, number 0462. It's one of the hadiths. And Abu Hurairah reported, The Apostle of Allah said, When any of you awakes from sleep and performs ablution, he must cleanse his nose three times, for the devil spends the night in the interior of his nose. Okay, that is, that is the actual text of this hadith. Now let me read to you the footnote from this particular hadith, which is written by a commentator who's trying to explain this to Muslims. He says this, We should believe that Satan actually stays in the upper part of one's nose, though we cannot perceive how. For this is related to the unseen world of which we know nothing except what Allah tells us through his messenger. That's the footnote below this teaching in the hadiths in Islam. Okay, So, so stuff like this, actually exists out there guys and, and it's funny because that would make satan actually uh omnipresent right <laughs> because he would be sleeping in multiple men's noses all over the world and it would also make him i don't know how this would work but somehow this spiritual being would be pushed around by water because you can wash him out of your nose so just some weird stuff you see what i'm saying so so what makes the bible different from that then the skeptic is saying you got this kind of crud happening in the teachings of Islam. So what makes the Bible different from that? Well, we're going to get to that. We're going to look at that. Number four, moods and temperaments were different in the, in the different times that the authors were writing. So you've got portions of Scripture that are written from the heights of joy. You've got parts of the Bible written in the depths of sorrow. You've got Solomon writing after completing the incredible palace and temple. David wrote after King Saul tried to kill him. John wrote when he saw the risen Lord. Paul wrote from a prison in Philippi. Moses wrote in the wilderness. Jeremiah wrote in a dungeon. Daniel sat on a hillside and in a palace. Luke while traveling on a missionary journey. John wrote while he was exiled on an island. I wonder what he took with him on the note. But think about it, guys. All of this different stuff. And yet the Bible has one consistent message. That Jesus Christ is the redemption of all mankind. 
It has one common thread. It has one consistent message. You've got 40 different authors writing 66 different books on three different continents in three different languages over 1,500 years. And yet they don't contradict themselves. Different backgrounds, different cultures, different moods and temperaments. And yet the Bible is true. It stays consistent all the way throughout its message. Guys, it's a testimony of God's divine power. It's a testimony of the divine source of, our, of the Bible. Now, H, where was that written? Whoops. I guess, does anybody need to get those? Got them already? Okay. H, where was it written? Again, I just mentioned this. It was written on three continents. Asia. Uh, that's where the book of Ephesus uh, was written. Paul writing, I'm sorry, the book of Corinthians was penned in Ephesus. 1 Corinthians, Paul was in Ephesus when he wrote that letter. You've got the, the continent of Africa. That's where parts of Exodus and the book of Jeremiah were written. There in Egypt. Then you've got Europe, where Paul uh, wrote some epistles from the prisons that he stayed in. So, three different continents that this book was written on. And what subjects were covered in this writing? I... Well, there were hundreds of controversial subjects covered in the writing of the Bible. And we, you know, questions like or subjects like this, you know, who is God? Where did man come from? You know, what is sin? What is death? Is there life after death? Is there a purpose for human beings? How does one obtain eternal life? Things like that, guys. These, these amazing, deep life questions that are built into human beings. And, and, and these, these are addressed in the Scriptures. There is civil, criminal, ethical, ritual, and sanitary laws written in the Bible. It's been well documented that the Jewish nation for hundreds of years was able to basically be disease-free from a lot of the diseases that were ravaging communities and, and peoples around them. And yet it wasn't happening in the Jewish communities. Well, why was that? Well, it was because they were simply following the Levitical laws of washing. And, and when you touched a dead person, you were supposed to wash and remain unclean. And when, you know, if, if a woman was on her menstrual cycle, she was to not touch things. And the things that she touched had to be washed and all these sorts of things. And they had all, all that laid out. And they figured out, well, they were, they were actually uh, doing things, practicing hygiene laws that we have today long before anybody else was. Because God told them to do it. All of that kind of stuff is in the Bible. But yet the Bible has one central theme. That one central theme is redemption to God through Jesus Christ. And that one theme stems off to answer all the other questions that are necessary to know about God. The Bible has unity, in other words, in all the areas of its writing, and that unity is found in Christ. So the unity in Christ is perfect in every form of writing, historically, morally, prophetically, and theologically. That was what you guys needed to write down there. Um, for that. And, and this is going to be something that we're going to be studying. The unity of the Bible in Christ is seen in every form of writing, both historically, morally, prophetically, and theologically. 
And that makes it unique. It makes it special. There's no other sacred book where you find unity in all four of these areas, historically, morally, prophetically, and theologically. There'll be something off in one of those or more of those categories in usually all of them because they just can't stay consistent. It's fallible. But the Bible is different. The Bible has a divine source. It's God-breathed. It's inspired. And therefore, it's inerrant and it's original autographs. Now, John chapter 5, verse 39 and verse 46. I think it's on your handout there. It says that you diligently study the Scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the Scriptures that testify about Me. Notice what Jesus says. The Scriptures testify about Him. And then He says, If you believed Moses, you would believe Me, for He wrote about Me. You see that? Jesus ties together the Old Testament. He ties together the five books of the Torah with Himself. And He says, look, it's all unified and it comes to completion in Me, in My life, in My death and in My resurrection. So if you're looking for eternal life, you're going to find it through Jesus, through studying His life. So I have a challenge for you guys. What if we were to take 10 different men and women from around the world with different backgrounds to write about a few controversial subjects like this? What if we asked them, tell us who is God? Tell us what is sin and tell us how we can know God. If we were to randomly choose 10 men and women from around the world with different backgrounds and cultures and languages and, and, and upbringings and all of that, bring them here to this room, and we were to interview them, who's God, how do we come to know Him, and what is sin? And what, what, do you think that we would get one consistent answer from them? No way. No way. I think you'd get 10 different answers that would probably split into about 30 different answers, you know? Um, so that, you know, this is, this is how, how, that doesn't necessarily in and of itself prove the Word of God. But listen, the Bible proves to us that there is a God who is able to communicate to mankind, and He's done that through the Bible. A lot of people don't think that the Bible can be used to show that God exists, but I think when you look at all of this stuff that we've just talked about, we have a very strong case. We have very strong evidence that there is a creator who created us and now is communicating with us through Scripture. There's a quote out there that says that some, one of the reasons... Whoops. Went too far. One of the reasons that people are down on the Bible is because they are not up on the Bible. They've never studied the origin of the Bible. They've never studied things that we're looking at today. So they're down on the Bible, but they don't realize how unique it is. They don't realize how amazing it is that all of this was put together the way it was. So the, the, you know, knowing these things that we've looked at tonight about the Bible, it helps us to see that we have a rational faith. We're not taking a leap of intellectual suicide to say, look, this book is divine, it's inspired, it's inerrant, and because of that, it points us to the reality of God, that there is a God. We're not taking a leap of uh, uh, intellectual 
uh, blind faith in doing that. We have rational evidence for this that backs up what we're claiming. But, you know, there's always going to be somebody out there who is just going to refuse to see that or to accept that. It's kind of like, you know, there was a, there was a guy who uh, hunted birds, upland bird, game birds a lot, and he had a retriever. And this retriever was just amazing, just an amazing bird dog. You know, he would run out there and grab those birds and be right back. But this, this retriever could do something special. He could actually walk on water. This retriever could actually run across the lake on top of the water, get the bird, and run back without sinking. This this dog was amazing. He was extra special. You know, there was a guy who said, you know, there's no, I don't believe that. There's no dog that can walk on water. There's no dog can run on water. So the guy took him hunting with him, and he went out there and shot one of those ducks, and it fell in the lake, and the dog just ran out there right across the top of the water, grabbed that duck, and ran back. And the guy was standing there and he looked at his friend and he said, you know what, I noticed one thing right off the bat about your dog. He can't swim. (laughs) So just totally refusing to acknowledge the fact of what he had just seen. So there's some people out there like that, isn't there? You can point them to the evidence. You can bring them all of these facts, but they're still not going to believe. They'll, they'll even admit it. Yeah, all that stuff sounds really convincing. I once had a conversation with some Mormons in my living room. Got them to admit that there was errors in the Book of Mormon. And all of those things. I mean, they, they admitted. They were like, yeah, you're right. We see it. You know, the DNA evidence of the Native Americans is not Israeli DNA. It's, you know, it's from Mongolia. It's tied to Mongolia and Asia and all this kind of stuff. And we had this longer. And yeah, you're right. We see it. And I said, so... Um, you know, what are you guys going to do? Oh, we're just going to keep right on believing because we had, we, had a feel, we had a feeling, we had a burning in our bosom is what they told me. They were basing their entire belief system on this feeling that they had. But there's people like that. You can, you can present the evidence and you can show them all the facts. And yet they'll, they'll still choose to, to rather believe in something like evolution, which I think takes more faith than to believe what we've been talking about with the Bible. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, God says, God invites us to come to Him and to reason with Him. He says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Hey, God is willing to sit down and reason with us. Let's reason together. But you know what He's going to show us? You know what He's going to point to? Is the fact that we're fallible. We have sin. We, we have committed sins, and our sins are like scarlet. But God says, I've made a way for you to be cleansed. And that way is through Jesus Christ. Your sins are as red as scarlet, but they shall be as white as snow. That's what God wants to point us to in the Scriptures. In Matthew 22, verse 37, Jesus came along, and He said basically the same thing. He said, listen, here's, here's what life is about. You need to love the Lord your God. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's what life is about. That's what life is about. Now we come to the end of this here of what we must know. We're going to spend the last part of our class tonight looking at what we must know about this class. You will see this on a quiz or should I dare say test. So there will be a test. So you will need to take this stuff home and you will need to kind of study it a little bit when you get a chance. But we're going to do that tonight too. 
And remember I said, you can't fail this class. You can't fail this test, okay? So you're going to have, you know, all the opportunities that you need to be able to get this stuff down. But why am I doing this? Because, because I want you guys to get this. I want you guys to take it away with you. And if I don't make it serious, man, I know somebody's not going to take it serious. They're going to be like, all right, cool. And then they're going to leave and it's just going to float through the brain like it does through my brain. You know, it just kind of floats around and it goes somewhere. I don't know where it goes. But when I have to write it down, it helps me. So when you hear somebody, when you're talking to somebody, a friend, an unbeliever, maybe an atheist or an agnostic, and they tell you, listen, the Bible is not the Word of God. When they tell you Christianity is a blind faith, you're taking an intellectual leap of suicide if you believe in that. When they tell you nobody can know there's a God, there's no way anybody can know there's a God. That's what the agnostic will tell you. The atheist will tell you there is no God. There is absolutely no God at all. When somebody comes and they say, listen, there's no proof that a God exists. What are you guys going to say to them? Bruce. Says his spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God, and that's what I hold my trust in. When I came to know the Lord, He spoke to my heart. He brought me to the cross. He, he made me see what I was, my infallible, my, my sins that I didn't even know what they were at eight years old. All right. <laughs> Give me something from the class. Give me something from the class that we can present as evidence. We just talked about all of these things. Yeah. We've got, we've got divinely inspired inerrant word. Well, why is it divinely inspired and inerrant? What, do you, what makes you say that? Oh, there was, there was 40 different authors? Well, what is that, what is that? Why is that special? There's no way that those people could do that within their own power. They had to be guided by the Holy Spirit. Okay. Because over 1,500 years, the culture was different, the times were different, and situations Okay, okay, so now we're getting somewhere. Louisa, what were you going to say? Oh, that's what I was going to say, that it doesn't contradict itself. Right. Okay, so is that, does that seem like something that would be normal? I mean, could we get 10 people from around the world and get them in a room and tell us, tell us one consistent thing about who God is, how we can know Him, and what sin is, and what, how, to, how to get eternal life? No. You can't get God to write the newspaper. Yeah. I mean, could we, get, could we even get three people from this room that could give us, you know, the same consistent answer? I hope so. I hope so. I was just thinking about how, you know, there's been evidence that it's found all over. You know, there's uh, manuscripts from, I, think, I don't know if it, I don't think too many classes, but one class, <laughs> you know, talk about how many have been found that are... They're right. They're they're exact of what they were. More of those than you know. I remember um, hearing like they somebody will quote some of the philosophers of all times, and there isn't a whole book. There might be a sentence, and it's a lot of it's uh, passed down, and it's not even yeah. authentic. You know? That book I was talking about last time, Josh McDowell's book that goes on what you're talking about. He said, if I remember, it's been a while since I read the book, but if I remember correctly, he said there's 25,000 yeah. artifacts. Manuscripts. Manuscripts yeah. were different, more than, yeah. None of the autographs exist. We don't have the autographs, but there are manuscripts, scrolls, all that that exist, parts of pieces, 
25,000 that, yeah. that proved the Bible to be correct. He said, if you take another great book of history, I think he, was, I think he said it was Homer's Iliad, that there was only like eight. Mm -hmm. and, the, and the earliest one that they are, the, yeah, the earliest one they had was like 500 years yeah. after the right. Iliad was written. Yeah. And you take the Bible, there was, you know, we can place things within a hundred years yeah. of when things actually happened. Some of them, right. not all of them, some of them. Right. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. We're going to cover that actually later on in our class. The same things that you're talking about there. But here's, here's the response. I think this is on your handout. Here's the response when the skeptic comes and they say, look, there's, you know, the Bible's not the Word of God. Christianity is a blind faith. No one can know God. There's no proof that God exists. Here's your response. You can tell them, listen, the Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years in three languages, on three continents, by 40-plus authors of differing backgrounds on hundreds of controversial topics, yet they don't contradict each other but are 100% accurate historically, morally, prophetically, and theologically. And then you can put it back on them, okay? You can challenge them and say, you know what? I challenge you to pick just 10 men they can have the same background, put them in separate rooms, and have them write on three controversial subjects like who's God, what is sin, and how do we know God? Who in their right mind would expect all of those writings to agree? You can challenge them right back with that. And they're going to go, nobody. Nobody could do that. And that's, that's that, there you go. And then you could bring it down and you say, you know what, pick three men. Would even three men with the same background agree perfectly on those three questions if you split them up into separate rooms and had them write, who's God, what is sin, and how do you come to know God? Could they tell us consistently, unless you know they were all Christians that believed in the Word of God? Pick one man. Could even one man agree with himself without ever wanting to go back and to edit that writing at a later date? No way, man. Look at the Book of Mormon. Look at, the, look at the Quran and look at the Hadiths. All of those things, they tell us not even one man can write consistently with himself because we're fallible creatures. So the conclusion is that a work like the Bible could not be done without divine influence, guys. There's no way that 40 plus authors from different backgrounds and cultures could write over, you know, in three different, over a period of 1,500 years, three different languages on three continents by 40 authors on hundreds of controversial topics, not contradicting one another, but are 100% accurate historically, morally, prophetically, and theologically. little quote for you guys here as we get ready to, to practice this. Um, at the end... James Jennings said this. He said, if a man's Bible is coming apart, it is an indication that he himself is fairly well put together. I like that. If a man's Bible is coming apart, it's a good indication that he himself is fairly well put together. And then Thomas Watson said this. He said, leave not off reading the Bible till you find your hearts warmed. Let it not only inform you, but inflame you. I like that. 
Let it not only inform you, but let it inflame you. 